Hi, welcome to the WellDoc podcast. We're medical students bringing you honest conversations with practicing physicians surrounding wellness and medicine. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we look to those in the field for direction and advice in achieving balance and wellness in our present and future lives. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Dr. Feeney for the Well Doc podcast. In this part, we talk a little bit more about building our passion, ways to incorporate our values into our careers, and even more about backpiping. Let's jump right back into the conversation. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. I want to ask you about your military service. Okay. Um, so I think being in the service is, you know, notoriously difficult physically, mentally, um, and it's known to have an impact on a lot of people's mental health. So how I'm sure you saw a lot of difficult situations. You've talked about some of them in lectures, but how do you handle those kinds of difficult situations? So I I think there are two key components. The first one is training, right? The first one is you you can't ask anybody to go into a situation when they don't know what's coming around the corner, right? So step one is training. If your training is good and your training addresses what you're seeing most of the days every day, then you'll be fine. The second thing I think is um, communication. This is that's probably the fifth time I said that word today. Um, I think one of the things I did in Afghanistan and um, before that, what we did in um, Saudi Arabia was every time we had a patient who was sick or really badly hurt, and especially if we had somebody who died, we sat down, we debriefed immediately, immediately. I think part of the human nature when you have a sick patient is to be like, you know, that guy died because it took me too long to get the IV in. That guy died because I didn't have the x-ray ready in time. And none of that is true. Universally, that I mean, the stuff that people will blame on themselves, none of it is true. Now, if you get somebody who, you know, slipped in the OR and dropped a scalpel blade down into the aorta and the patient bled to death, okay, maybe now you've got a, a case that, you know, your, your direct accident in action killed a patient, fine. But short of something stupid like that, you know, no. And I, so I think that the communication that this was not your fault, this patient had a lethal injury, that, you know, they didn't die because you were inadequate. You did the stuff you needed to do correctly. That's what people need to hear. And when they hear that, they go, okay, next time. Maybe next time we'll get them. That's another good thing to say is, you know, look, we didn't get them this time. We'll get the next one. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that this guy died. We'll get the next one. And, and I think if you just say those things to patients or you say those things to your team members, it goes a long way. And look, it doesn't just have to be the military. I mean, these kinds of things need to happen in, uh, in the emergency department, too. They need to happen with the physicians. Um, I'll tell you a story. We had a, a young lad who had been stabbed by his cousin just below his clavicle. He had taken the last slice of cheese and his cousin was angry. So he stabbed him right in the clavicle. Kid came in dead and he came in dead. And I wasn't going to open his chest because he'd been dead for a while. And it wasn't an injury that typically would respond to a thoracotomy. But everybody was so upset by the sight of a dead 14-year-old with a single little stab wound. It was just, you know, open his chest because maybe we could do something. So we opened his chest and we tried. And the kid died anyway. 
and I called an immediate debrief. This was in in, in the hospital in Connecticut. I called an immediate debrief. And we called everybody into the other trauma room, closed the doors. And the first thing is everybody starts arguing and yelling at each other. Well, you didn't do this. And what's wrong with you? How come you couldn't? Blah, blah, blah. Everything. You know, you were too slow with this. Or, you know, when somebody says do this, you do it right away. Like, I don't care that pharmacy wasn't available. Whatever. That's the kind of garbage we were getting. Stopped everybody and I said, Listen, so the very, very last thing that this little kid did with his very, very short life was to give each of us a lesson. It's a very valuable lesson. He paid for it with his life. Don't waste it by doing this. You didn't stab him. That was a lethal injury. Learn so that with the next lethal injury, we can get the guy back. And immediately, the entire room changed from squabbling with each other to, Well, um, the ED thoracotomy tray wasn't labeled correctly, and how come the Levchkin knife isn't in the ED thoracotomy tray? How come I had to go looking for it? Like, it's not labeled Levchkin knife, and you asked for Levchkin knife. It's labeled mallet and sternal knife. Oh, okay, well, you know, like, we can fix. These are things we can fix, right? And that kid stuck with me because I, I was able to articulate my displeasure with the kind of squabbling, but think about how many times in medicine that squabbling goes on and, and how many times somebody might benefit from that sentiment that just, just stop fighting over nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're missing the whole point. I guess it's easier to say that something isn't your fault or like to have somebody say that to you, but it's a lot harder to, I think, actually believe that. And I think especially... You know, for younger either students or younger physicians who haven't had as much experience with it, um, it's, it's hard to just accept that and figure out how to move on from that. There's a very serious risk of this job, but it's also, again, a skill that needs to be taught, you know. Yes, you participated. Yes, your participation wasn't perfect. No, the patient's death was not your fault because of that. That causality just doesn't exist in most cases. Yeah. Okay, I guess one thing I want to know is, I think, especially for you as a trauma surgeon, um, you see a lot of cases that are difficult to deal with, um, a lot of cases that feel more tragic than others. And when you do see a lot of that, it's hard not to take that home with you and not to think about it so much. So how do you handle cases like that? Mm -hmm. Sometimes not very well. Um, I think, you know, it's sometimes it's not easy. And there, there are a few that have left marks through my whole life. And that, that is an occupational hazard, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's funny. I, I've said, you've heard me say this before probably, but you know, there are certain careers in, in this world that require a little bit of sociopathy. You've got to be a little bit of a sociopath to be able to take knife to skin, right? You've got to be a little bit of a sociopath to be able to draw your handgun and shoot it at somebody like a police officer may have to do. And do they leave marks when you do it? Yeah, they do. Um, but I think you, you have to, you know, you kind of have to try to temper that down to think to yourself, you know, and honestly, when you've had a really bad case and it's, it's really bothering you, it's very easy to bring those dark feelings to the care of your next patient. So you've got to understand that, you know, that is pathologic and, um, you know, try to fight against it as much as you can. And, you know, I, I know plenty of people who seek counseling of their own. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I know other people who, you know, may go back to their house and play their bagpipe. You know, you're, you're going to have, this is, this is the reason right here is the 
reason why your wellness is so important because this job could destroy you if you're not careful. It could turn you into a completely non-functional sociopathic loser if you let it. The kind of person that nobody wants to be around, that can't hold a polite conversation and isn't fit to be in polite society. If you let it, it could happen. So that's why exactly what you're doing with this podcast is so important. People need to think about this and say, how am I going to decompress after these after these uh, events? You know, some people might want to put on their skis and go up the slopes and just take a day decompressing that way, you know, so that you don't feel like such a failure because you got down that slope pretty well, you know. Um, some, some people just want to go home and play with their kids and be in the company of people who just genuinely like them for no other reason. <laughs> And that they are who they are. Right. But these are, this, is, this is why you need balance in your career and in your life. So I'm sure you've met plenty of people like this. How do you handle the colleagues who have kind of fallen down that rabbit hole of, you know, letting themselves be affected by what they're doing? It's hard because they'll look at you and they're like, oh, you piece of garbage. You needed a weekend off. What's wrong with you? Like, oh, you're so weak because you said no to the extra call. Don't worry. I'll take it. It's really hard. It's really hard to get people into that headspace, but it benefits everybody. Honestly, it benefits everybody. And it's easier in a leadership position to say, no, you're not taking an extra call. You've taken too many already this month. To say to somebody, why don't you take a week, you know, why don't you take a, a month with only one week of service instead of three? I think that's important to be able to do that. But, you know, as a, as a colleague, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is say, hey, we'll go have lunch and, you know, just talk to them about, you know, well, what did you do before medical school? Like, how come you don't do that anymore? You know, like, uh, oh, you used to, you used to ride, you used to ride your bike a lot or you used to like mountain biking. How come you don't do that anymore? You know, get them thinking about the good old days. You know, maybe sometimes it doesn't take much. Seems a little simple for such a big problem that we have in medicine. You know, I was a top-level professional bagpiper as a teenager. And when medical school and residency hit, during my fellowship, I didn't play for the entire year. I didn't play for the last two years of medical school because I was, quote, too busy. And then as an attending, all it took was somebody saying, hey, what do you think about doing, you know, doing the World Pipe Band Championships with us? You know, it was my old friend and teacher. And he's like, you could do this falling down. Just, just come out to Scotland for the week and play. And that was all it took. That was all it took. You know, one guy saying, you could do this falling down. Come on. You know, one, one week. You, you got to take some vacation anyway. Come on. And that was that was 2006. So now I'm kind of back into it for 15 years for real. And all because one guy was like, you know, don't give up your life for this. So what would you say to people who are in the last two years of medical school or people who are in residency where you maybe have a little bit less of a choice of how much time you're spending on medicine? Yeah, I would say you, you have to make this important to you. You have to make this important to you because it will make you somebody that more people want to be around. It'll make you somebody that more people want to spend time with. And you'll be a better partner. You'll be a better doctor. Doing stuff outside of medicine makes you more human and makes you a better doctor because it allows you to connect with your patients a little bit better, you know? You, you, that's one of the things that we tend to do as a defense mechanism is to say, oh, the alcoholic in bed 12 with the bad liver, the drug addict in bed, you know, 14 who crashed his car. We tend to make them into something that got what they deserve as opposed to a human being who does things that maybe aren't the smartest all the time, you know, but 
doesn't deserve a death sentence for it. It's, it's, you have cancer because you're a smoker, right? Nobody would ever say that now. But in the back part of our brain, we're saying, oh, how did that person get lung cancer? Are they smoker? Yeah. Is that, is it guys a smoker? Oh, okay. Now I get it. You know, why did this guy have a heart attack? Well, he never exercises. You know, okay. And then we understand how they're different from us. So how their pathology won't become our pathology. It's a fallacy, but we do it as a defense mechanism. So we don't have to worry, you know, and I think, you know, making people more of a human makes you say, okay, so the guy goes out and has a couple pints with the boys on Thursday night. You know, lots of people do that. It's not a bad thing. Or uh, this guy was, uh, you know, this guy was out um, hiking up on this mountain when he fell off the cliff face. That doesn't make you a bad guy. It makes you an okay guy who was just out there having fun and had something bad happen to him. That's okay. It allows you to have a better relationship with your patients. Fair enough. Um, so you've mentioned bagpiping. Uh, you also scuba dive. Yeah. How do you make time for that in your career? Um, so the piping I will do whenever somebody gives me an extra free hour or two. I really work that in. My, my kids have learned, so it's something that we do as a family. My daughter is a fairly accomplished bagpipe player. I'm really proud of how well she's done lately. You know, and uh, it's something I enjoy for not just the physical components of it. I mean, there's a there are vibrations that come off a bagpipe that when you're standing right there holding the damn thing, it's uh, ecstatic. And I, I think a lot of musicians will tell you, and probably in a different set of words, that you know they can feel their cello in their bones. This is what they mean. They mean that these vibrations run through them, and they love it. And I'm the same way. But um, also from a mental health standpoint, boy, there's, there's something about 600-year-old music that, and being able to reproduce it in a faithful way that, you know, just makes you feel like you have an understanding about things that are universal. And as for scuba diving, when my wife forces me to go on a vacation that doesn't involve bagpipes, which is infrequently, then I scuba dive. <laughs> You clearly have a very deep-seated passion for bagpiping. Um, and you've talked about, I think before we've had a conversation about finding what you're passionate about in your career as well and how important that is. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think if you love something, you're going to be brilliant. And there are so many people in medicine that have designs on your career as a medical student. And it sounds silly, but it's true, right? Your school wants a certain percentage of you to go into primary care, not because they are dying to make more primary care physicians, but because they get a couple bucks, you know. Um, all of my ilk tend to have this perverse idea that, that you should be validating our personal life choices by making the same choice with your own life. I think that's a perversion. I don't understand that for a second. I think what we should be doing is trying to help you find what you love so that you can be brilliant. And for my part, if you love surgery, great. I'm always looking for new partners. If you love endocrinology, my patients need endocrinologists sometimes, and I need somebody who loves it and is brilliant at it to send them to. That, to me, makes more sense. Um, but I think that those designs that everybody has on your career manifests as if you don't want to do what I want you to do, then I have no time for you. And that's unfortunate. If the surgeons find out you want to be a pediatrician, then they start they treat you different on the entire rotation. That's stupid. And it's, you know, people say, well, I'm not going to waste my time on somebody who's not interested in surgery. Well, that's, that's also a perversion because you should, right? By the end of that rotation on surgery, this person is going to know more about surgery than most attending pediatricians. So they're going to be a resource. I, it, I don't know. The, the, that whole idea of, you know, finding what it is that you love 
And it connects right back to wellness because if you're not centered in yourself, then you'll think that pleasing that other person, making that other person happy or proud of you is the end goal. Truth is after graduation, you ain't going to see that person again. You know, you're not going to see them again. And they're, they're not going to be there for your career when you have a hard call night. They're going to be somebody that you talk about at a cocktail party, you know, but I had this one guy one time. So you can't base your decisions on that. You have to base your decisions on what, what it is you really love. And it's really, it gets really confusing and really hard to figure out what, what it is that you love. So you, you'll have to, you really have to be centered and self-aware in order to figure it out. All right. So I have a couple follow-ups to that. The first one being how, how did you figure out what it was that you loved and how would you advise students to go about figuring out? what it is that they really want to be doing. Yeah, I, I had a really hard time. It was agony, right? And I, I finally figured it out by writing personal statements. So I was trying to figure out what it was I wanted to be. And I asked my advisor for advice. And I got some advice from my advisor about, you know, you know, you have to you have to really think about it. But if you can't figure it out, go into medicine, because everybody does better if, if they have a background in internal medicine. And um, one of the things he told me was, you know, what's been the most constant in your medical school career? And the answer to that was clearly plastic surgery, right? The woman who is now my wife used to be a secretary in the plastic surgery office. And so I used to go into that office and take her to lunch and pick her up after the work day and that kind of thing. And that turned into the fellows bringing me in to show me x-rays and seeing patients and teaching me how to suture in the ED and bringing me into the OR, even as a first-year medical student, which was wonderful. And so I thought, well, maybe I want to be a plastic surgeon. So I went to write the personal statement, and it was awful. I mean, it stank. So doing what my advisor told me, I thought, well, my backup will be internal medicine. Let me write that personal statement, and that one was even worse. So as I wrote the personal statement for surgery, I realized something was different. There was one of the programs. It was the Leahy Clinic in Boston that required me to apply to their general surgery program. And as I wrote that personal statement, I realized that it was completely different. And from an emotional level, it went from this guy's going through the motions to, whoa, there's something uh, there's something here. You know, there's something here that uh, we should pay attention to. And I went through it and tried to figure out, you know, what it was, tried to break down what it was that was different about them. And what I got was that there were some doctors who like subjectivity in medicine. We call those doctors psychiatrists. There are some doctors who like objectivity in medicine. I lump them together as the doctor's doctors. But, you know, succinctly, they're people who sit in dark rooms and read tests, you know, pathologists and radiologists. Then there are people who like to manage chronic disease and people who like to treat acute illness and injury. And then as I thought about it over the years, I figured, well, maybe there's a fifth kind. And those are the people who like to manage chronic wellness. Like you're not sick, but you need these things to keep you healthy. They deal a lot with population medicine and you know, screening and that kind of thing, you know, in, uh, general internal medicine, uh, family medicine, et cetera, your pediatrics, you know, you need these 14 immunizations to stay healthy, that kind of thing. And I, I figured to myself, you know, like what it is that brought me to medical school was that acute illness and injury idea. It was the 3 a.m. phone call. It was never the 40 patients in the office who are diabetics and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at their A1Cs. It was never that, you know. So being true to that meant I probably wanted to do surgery. And I probably wanted to do something like trauma and critical care because it was very immediate, very, you know, uh, uh, instant gratification type thing. And I, I figured knowing me as I thought I did, I would like that better. I think I had the best job in the universe, you know, and my goal for all of the students is that, you know, in the middle of their careers, they can say, I got the best job in the universe, regardless of what that job is.
So you mentioned that one important thing is really being centered in yourself in terms of figuring out what it is that you want. Um, And you're right. We have a lot of people around us trying to tell us what to do or convince us a certain way. And it's really easy to be influenced, I think, by people either positively or negatively that you experience in your rotations. So how do you kind of not um, ignore that, but, you know, take that into account, but still keep your sense of yourself and what you want to be doing? Yeah, it's that's probably the hardest part is to separate the desire to please a charismatic individual that you've met and you respect to what is it that you really like, right? That's the hardest part. And if that charismatic individual is even a little bit thoughtful, they'll understand that you have a different set of desires out of your career. Um, I see a lot of people who talk about lifestyle. Well, I don't really want the lifestyle of this or the lifestyle of that, you know. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, I personally feel like 60 hours a week of psychiatry would have done more damage to me, you know, emotionally and psychiatrically than 100 hours a week of surgery, <laughs> you know, just because that wasn't what I liked. I would have been going through the motions for too long. You know, again, like you were saying about the medical students, you know, how do you tell who's just doing it to get into school? Well, you, you can't. And lots of people make mistakes when they choose their career because they, you know, either didn't think about it or didn't think about it the right way or didn't really understand what they were getting themselves into or they did understand and thought that they would be okay with it and it turns out they weren't. So another question would be, um, again, with this idea of being centered around yourself, you know, we're all pretty young, we're still trying to figure out even who we are, and what we want, how would you recommend going about figuring out who you are as a person, who you're going to be in 10 years, or 20 years down the line? It, it takes a lot of self-discovery and, and introspection to be able to do that. And sometimes that means sitting in a quiet place and processing the emotions that you've had during your clerkships and saying, you know, maybe there's a reason why I had so much trouble getting out of bed every morning when I was doing surgery. Maybe that reason is more than just they wanted me there early. You know, maybe there's a reason that I was up just as early when I was doing dermatology, reading extra in the morning so that I could you know, and then when I got to the office, I liked it so much better. You know, those are the kinds of clues that you give yourself. For me, it was, why am I having so much trouble writing, uh, you know, the front of a page about why I want to be a plastic surgeon? Why does this feel so disingenuous, right? And, and why is it that when I'm trying to write about being an internist, I can't stand most of the things I'm listing about what I really want to do? For me, it was writing. So maybe writing is a tool that some people will be able to use. It's nice to have a person in your life that you can bounce stuff stuff off of, you know, my, my wife wanted me to be a, uh, an ophthalmologist. She's an optometrist. So she was like, Hey, if you went to be an ophthalmologist, we could work together. It's like, um, yeah, the only problem with that is I have to do ophthalmology, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I think, you know, writing, like I say, writing is one way to do it. You know, some, some people will, will have other things that they can utilize in order to, um, you know, bring their own desires into focus a, a little bit more. Um, sometimes, you know, talking to somebody who's close to you, knows you really well, will help out too. Right. I mean, I guess we've talked about it in the context of figuring out your career, but it's also just important, I think, for everything else you want to do in your life. Um, And also there's this idea that I think everybody has a vision of what each career will look like, but there's so much, so many other things that you can incorporate into your career um, if you care about a lot of other things, which I know is something that you like to tell your students as well. I ask everybody at the beginning of the rotation, what is your role in the provision of social justice? Because you have so much authority in this community and so much uh, respectability and um, uh, 
uh, people will follow you because of who you are. So use it wisely. Figure out how you're going to use it and use it wisely. I absolutely tell people that. And I, I think, you know, here's another thing. It's probably worth some thought. We talk about making the right decision. It may not be one right decision. I don't know the answer to that. There might be three things that you could do wonderfully, right? And be good at, be really good at any of them, right? And and so I, I think it's it's important to try to get one of those, you know, to be the thing that you end up going into. Because, you know, like you don't want to go into ophthalmology because your father-in-law wants you to go into ophthalmology. I, I just, I use that as an example and, and you know, not have that be on the list. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so going on with the social justice idea, I'm curious why you decided that that was something that was important to you and why you decided that was something that you would tell all your students. I have been talking about that since I can remember, but a really great example of somebody who has embraced the idea of using his authority as a physician for the betterment of communities across America is Anthony Fauci. I mean, here's a guy who just he speaks truth. People may disagree with him. People call him all kinds of names. Some people hold him up as more than he is. Some people try to break him down to be less than he is. The truth of the matter is, he is a physician, but he doesn't know. He says, we're not really sure, but here's what we think. And when it turns out to be wrong, he says, you know, we were wrong about that. Now here's what we think based on more data, right? And he's just, he's honest. He's direct and people vilify him for that one, you know, oh, he used to say this. Now he says that he's know what he's talking about. Well, you know what? Most of us understand that you don't know in the beginning. You say what you think. More data will come out and it'll, it'll be pending. And then I'll tell you how we did, you know? So he's a great example of somebody who's used his authority, um, his respectability as a physician, his position in the community to affect great change across America, behavioral change. How many thousands of lives has that guy's words saved, right? By contrast, there are other physicians, I can't remember that guy's name, Scott Atlas, is that his name? Who, you know, is a radiologist and gets up and starts spouting off about herd immunity. Like that's an irresponsible use of your voice, right? Um, certainly there are uh, physicians in Congress who are legislators and have some position on the on, you know different subcommittees, Senate or House subcommittees that deal with you know health across America, you know Medicare, Medicaid, that kind of thing. And certainly those individuals, um, you know, use their authority as physicians to get people to understand that they know what they're talking about. And I think, you know, there are other ways to do it too. There are ways where you can be an educator, not just medical students, not just, you know, physician assistant students or nursing students, but educators out in your community, right? There, there are certainly, there are, are you know, public access talks and lectures and things like that, that you can give that people will appreciate that can make a huge difference within a community, you know? Sorry. Um, yeah, so that's the, um, you know, all of those are, are ways that people can use their respectability and authority as a, as a well-educated physician to impact their communities. And I, I encourage everybody to think about that and to do it. So how do you do it? Well, I try to be as, as much of an educator as I can be. I talk to a lot of EMS folks and by way of medical education. Um, and I also, you know, as you know, I'm the site director for the medical students. I also uh, am the site director for the residents and the site director for the PA students uh, up here. And all of them are now getting this idea that, you know, you and I talked about, about changing the toxic culture of surgery. And we started in a good place here at Mid-Hudson with genuinely gentlemanly gentlemen who were on the trauma service. So that wasn't hard at all. Um, but, you know, we did have people who were here before, you know, after I got here, but aren't here now, who were less than that. 
all of us as a group had to say, you're not going to do that. Like, you're not going to do that in our backyard, you know, and we dug our heels in, you know, and uh, that, that person no longer works here because we just didn't want that kind of an atmosphere. So, um, you know, I, I realized when I, my last deployment in Afghanistan, one of my other jobs was to be the training officer as also the, the chief at the forward surgical team there, the chief of surgery at the forward surgical team. And, um, I realized the impact that the educational program that I had on, you know, the 30 person unit who had zero experience in trauma, except for me, I realized the impact that the education had on that. And I decided that that was going to be the way I wanted to do it was through education. So I went, you know, back to school as a 40 something, I went back to school and got a master's in education to make myself better at it just for no other reason that I wanted to be better at. I think that also it touches on this idea of like people always talk about avoiding like one way to avoid burnout is to make sure that you're incorporating your other values into your career. Yes. And it definitely touches on that as a good way to do it. Got to be true to yourself. That's a that's a famous Shakespeare quote. It's spoken by a, page, a man called Polonius in Hamlet, and he's giving advice to his son who's off to college. He's telling him little tidbits that sound like they're from Poor Richard's Almanac, but probably predate Poor Richard by 200 years. And he's, the last one he says, and this above all else to thine own self be true, thou canst then be false to no man. Still true so many years later. Yeah. So with this idea of the provision of social justice and also including your own values into your career, I think one of the difficult things with it is that it's easy to burn out on that too if you feel like, you know, things aren't changing or you're not seeing any progress being made. So how do you handle that kind of situation? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. You just got to keep just got to keep pounding away at it, you know. It, it's really helpful to see, you know, some effort that you've made have a little bit of success. And so you celebrate your the small successes. You don't and and you know, use the failures as lessons and just keep pounding away at it. That's the only thing you can do, you know. Easy to say, not easy to do, but that's, you know, it's really the only choice we have, isn't it? I guess so. Okay, I'm going to move on to the last couple questions that we have for you. So second last question is, if there's a one thing you could tell yourself as a med student, what would it be? Oh, not to take myself too seriously and, you know, to not sweat the small stuff. I mean, attention to detail is important. Obviously, still pay attention to detail, but, you know, don't get so wrapped up in some of the drama that is so common um, in, in, you know, on your medical school rotations because they really honestly didn't mean anything. You know? Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us for this. Thank you for having me. It was a really good talk. I enjoyed it. Thank you again to Dr. Feeney for how much you invest in your students and for continuing to challenge us to affect positive change. As always, a big thank you to Matthias Palmer for the excellent audio editing. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay well. <laughs>